Well, good morning. It's going to be a great week around here. Um, BBS starts Monday. Yeah. We will have 300 little urchins running around this place. We're the better part of a week. So uh, it'll, be, it'll be awesome. Um, the reason we do this is, is VBS is one of the primary ways we reach out to our community. It is a great way to, to expose people to the reality of Jesus. So it's not just a fun time. It, it, it really is a spiritual event. So uh, we have a request of you, and that is, would you pray? Would you pray that uh, it would be a great week, that kids would hear the gospel, that they'd respond appropriately uh, to who Jesus is and the reality of what he has done? So pray. Also, if you're free after this service, we get a lot of setup to do, so you're really welcome to stay and help, okay, if you're looking for something to do uh, this afternoon. Let's pray. Father, this morning we were reminded of who you are and the radical impact you make on our lives. And Father, as we think that through this morning, especially as we approach 1 Corinthians 5, we pray that you would give us a spirit of understanding and an openness of heart. Some of the things we'll wrestle with this, this morning are challenging and controversial and not sure what we think about them or how we respond. So we pray that you'd speak, you'd give us some clarity this morning as a church. And that we'd be honest with the text and honest with ourselves. So the end result is we'd go out of here, people of yours, ready to do a great job of furthering your kingdom and proclaiming your love to, to, to a, a dying world. We pray this in Christ's name and for his sake. Amen. How many of you uh, like getting flowers? You know, bouquet. What, what is the biggest problem with bouquets? They die, right? They're beautiful, and then they turn to this. (laughs) That image has uh, always reminded me of a quote by a Jewish theologian, uh, Will Herberg, in his book, Judaism and Modern Man. This was actually written in the 70s. But this phrase, the cut flower culture, has been uh, a phrase that I've really gravitated to because I think it describes what's going on in our world in so many ways today. He writes this, he said, the attempt made in recent decades by secularist thinkers to disengage the moral principles of Western civilization from their scripturally based religious context in the assurance that they could live a life of their own as humanistic ethics has resulted in our cut flower culture. Cut flowers retain their original beauty and fragrance, but only so long as they retain the vitality that they have drawn from the now severed roots. After that is exhausted, they wither and die. So with freedom, brotherhood, justice, and personal dignity, the values that form the moral foundation of our civilization, without the life-giving power of the faith out of which they have sprung, they possess neither meaning nor vitality. I think his observation that we live in a cut flower culture is absolutely correct. We live in a culture where our value system, our laws, and our ethical system has been rooted in Christendom. In other words, in a Christian worldview. I'm not saying that historically everybody was a Christian, 
but our way of thinking about life in terms of the legal system and ethics was rooted there. But that has been cut off. And over time, our culture is beginning to wilt and die. And the ripple effect of not having those roots are beginning to see in our culture more and more and more. And the speed of deterioration is accelerating. See it in all kinds of ways. You see it in the whole issues around sexuality. You see it in the issues around definition of what is a family. You see it in our shifting understanding of the nature of marriage. You see it in our culture's acceptance of pornography and its tolerance for that. You see it in the expanding use of drugs and that that's okay. You see it in the decline of the work ethic. You see it around issues of life and death. When is a person a person and when is it okay to practice euthanasia? Um, you see it in, in, in a reluctance to buy into the notion that there are any moral absolute. Our culture is declining. One of the things that happens because of that is there is a growing gap between the values and mindset and thinking of our culture and those who claim to follow Jesus. Um, and the gap is getting wider and wider. In terms of perspective, values, lifestyle. And it raises the question is how, how do we manage the gap? How do we respond to the brokenness? Or if you want, how do we respond to the sin in our culture and our world as followers of Jesus? Now, I think this <laughs> is an absolutely critical question. Because how we answer that question will, to a great degree, impact our effectiveness of advancing God's kingdom in our world. I happen to think that the church has mishandled this issue over the course of history, and we haven't thought clearly about it, but it's becoming critical now, especially if we want to make a difference in our culture. So I want us to wrestle with that whole issue this morning. How do we respond to a broken culture? We have been in a series called A Broken Kind of Beautiful. It's a study of 1 Corinthians. It's Paul's letter to the Corinthian church. And uh, Broken Kind of Beautiful plays on this notion that the church is, from God's perspective, his bride. So it's beautiful. It's something gorgeous to him. But on the other hand, it's, it's broken. It's pretty messed up. And the reason it's messed up is all of us are messed up. So it's a broken kind of beautiful. And Paul is writing to Corinth, this church there, and addressing some of the issues they're wrestling with. So chapters 1 through 4, he's gone after the issue of disunity, dissension, and that dissension has all been around leadership, and we've talked about that. And then he begins transitioning into this whole section where he's going to talk about sexuality, but as he moves into it, he deals with one specific situation in Corinth, and that is a man is living with his stepmother. Okay, and the church is proud of that. They're saying, hey, isn't grace an awesome thing? You know, it's okay to do whatever you want because God will forgive it. And Paul says, no, 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 no. That's not the, rest, the right response. So in chapter 5, he talks about how we respond to someone who is, is broken or, or entrapped in sin in the body. Okay, and he gives us a number of principles. Well, the first thing he, he says is that the church is a community um, that has standards, okay? 
a community that has standards. In other words, there are boundaries that define us as a church. And one of the things that happens when we join this church, we, we say we're going to live up to those standards, those expectations, the lifestyle that Jesus taught us to live. Second thing we learn, though, from the text is that the pressure is on, though, to ignore those who, who are breaking those standards, just to be silent. I mean, we live in a world of tolerance. We don't want to step out and tell somebody else how to live. But the third principle Paul gives us is, you know, we don't have that option. We have to hold people accountable. When the sin is public and it's severe and it's unrepentant, we have to act. And the way we act, the response we're to have is to to disassociate, to respond by withholding fellowship and association. He he says, in other words, we're we're to, to treat them like they're acting, like unbelievers. But the motivation behind this is not to punish the person or, or bring discipline upon them. The motivation behind this is, first of all, to protect, protect the people who are involved in the sin and to protect the body. Second of all, it is to protect the witness of the church and the world. But most importantly, the motivation is to, to get this person to turn around, to repent. In other words, the motivation of church discipline is always love, not punishment. It's always remedial. And so that's how we respond to someone trapped in a sin in the body that's public and severe and unrepentant. But, but, but while Paul is talking about this, he also just quickly addresses the issue of how we deal with sin in our culture or in our world, the brokenness there. And I want to talk about that this morning by looking at chapter 5 of 1 Corinthians, and I'm going to pull two principles that Paul articulates there out, and we're going to explain them. And then we're going to flesh that out a little bit by going to other places in Scripture to help us kind of have a full-orb understanding of how to respond to the brokenness in our culture. So look with me at 1 Corinthians 5, 9 through 13. Paul writes, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. Evidently, Paul has been corresponding with church, and there's another letter he wrote to them that we don't have. Uh, We can guess about some of the things it talks about by kind of reading between the lines, but they've been writing back and forth. And in a previous letter, he's written about them not associating with people who are broken, but they've misunderstood his advice. So he says, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with the sexually immoral people, not at all, meaning the people of the world who are immoral, or the greedy and swindlers or adulterers. In that case, you would have to leave this world. But now I am writing to you that you must not associate with anyone who claims to be a brother or sister, but is sexually immoral or greedy, an idolater or slanderer or a drunkard or swindler. Do not even eat with such people. What business is it of mine to judge those outside the church? Are you not to judge those inside? God will judge those outside. Expel the wicked person from among you. A couple of principles come out of what Paul's written here that we need to apply when we're thinking of dealing with our culture. The first principle is pretty simple. Do not disassociate. Do not isolate. Do not separate. Do, do not opt out of functioning and operating in the world. Uh, um, the sad thing is we, we have made this into a business, Uh, um, isolating ourselves from the culture. We have Christian radios. We have Christian publishing houses and Christian books. 
in Christian bookstores. We have Christian schools. We have Christian retirement clubs. We, we, we go to Christian mechanics and Christian plumbers. We have Christian yellow pages, so we can just deal with Christians. You know, I even heard of a Christian nudist colony. It's a little nauseating. I think they've missed the point. But we work hard to isolate ourselves. Now, I don't think our intentions are bad. Uh, uh, um, in fact, I, I think there's a host of reasons we do this. One is protection, right? We want to protect ourselves and we want to protect our kids. So, so we want to keep them in safe environments where they won't be tainted by the world. They won't be tempted to participate in what the world's doing. So part of it is this, this idea of, of protection. We, we are commanded to live holy lives. And if we're serious about that, then we try to manage our lives in a way that gives us the best opportunity to live out Christ's calling on our lives. So sometimes we feel like we, just to protect ourselves and protect our kids, we, we need to, to isolate. Part of the reason we do it is it's just natural. You know, when you become a believer in Jesus Christ, everything changes. Your values change, your perspective change, your worldview changes. In a sense, what you're doing when you become a believer is you're changing tribes, right? And when you change tribes, it has an impact on the tribe you used to be. And they've done studies on this that show over the course of two or three years, once a person becomes a believer, their relationship and the relational network changes. It becomes populated with those who are believers. And those who aren't believers, those who are part of the world, they distance themselves. It's natural. And then part of the reason we do it is simply preference. Right? We want to hang out with people who are like us, people who think like us and believe like us and have the same politics as us. It's just a far more comfortable to do that. And the point that Paul is saying, look, there's a huge gravitational pull that's trying to get you out of the world. So you have to be very intentional to push against that. And to see that happen uh, or lived out for us, one place to go is just to the ministry of Jesus. I mean, it's interesting. You look at his ministry and Jesus was always hanging out with those people on the margins of the culture, those people that, that the religious world saw as sinners. In fact, the religious leaders in, in Matthew chapter 2, they come to Jesus and they say, hey, why are you eating and fellowshipping with tax collectors and sinners? Uh, tax collectors in that Jewish world were kind of on the bottom rung of desirables. Uh, you had wanted nothing to do with them. And sinners... You know, the religious folks said, Jesus, I don't get it. You're supposed to be a holy guy. How can that be the people? How can that be your tribe? That's not right. And, and you know what he had done? He had just invited Levi, who was a tax collector, not just to dinner, but to be one of his disciples. And man, the religious leaders, the Pharisees are scratching their head and saying, man, how can this be? And Jesus responds. He says, look, I didn't come. To, to heal the healthy. I came to heal the sick. And what he's saying, he says, don't you understand the mission we're called to? We're, we're called to make a difference in the world, to have an impact for the kingdom. How can I fulfill the mission that the church, that, that my people are called to if I'm not engaged with people who need Jesus? How, how could I possibly do that? What is really interesting, if you look at that passing and what Jesus is doing there, there's a, there, there's a paradigm shift going on 
in, in terms uh, of holiness and religion. And it's a paradigm shift uh, that I call water and die to darkness and light. You say, what are you talking about? Well, well in the Old Testament, holiness w- was kind of think, thought of as if you're, you're a glass of pure water. All right, And you wanted to maintain your purity and your clarity. So what you would do is stay away from any kind of sin, isolate, detach from, because sin was like dye. And what happens when you put just a drop of dye into clear water? Man, it infiltrates the whole thing and everything becomes tainted. You know? Uh, um, and that's how the religious leaders, the Pharisees, thought. Well, no, no, we want to be holy so, so we, we, may, we need to make sure we don't get defiled. And the best way to make sure you don't get defiled is to isolate. And then Jesus comes along and he says, no, no, you're using the wrong metaphor. Holiness is not like water and dye. Holiness is like darkness and light. And he's saying, no, uh, holiness is like light. And what happens to light when you put it in darkness? It destroys it. And he says, that's what's supposed to be happening. You're supposed to be holy, and if you're holy, the darkness won't overcome you, but you will overcome the darkness. A whole different way of thinking about how we operate in the culture and the world. You see, Jesus is calling us to be a, a, a source of transformation, difference makers, in our world. And if that's the case, if we're on mission and that's the purpose of our life, then there is no way. The goal of the Christian life is just not to get out of here unscathed. <laughs> the goal of the Christian life is, is to change the world. And, and that means, and that's risky. I mean, you start rubbing elbows with the world and all the stuff they're involved in. It's dangerous. It, they, they might taint you a little bit. You're going to have to really work I'm not letting the darkness overcome the light. So don't disassociate. So, so let me ask you, how are you doing on that? You know, we, we ask ourselves and we think, well, I, 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 I don't disassociate. Well, and the way to find out whether you do or not is, is to take a look at who's in your sphere. Who do you hang out with? Are all the people you hang out with believers? Who in your sphere of influence is not a believer? And not only are they not believers, but who in your sphere of influence has a questionable lifestyle, is kind of on the margins, is a little bit disreputable, you know, uh, um, questionable. You know, we, we could say, well, I don't disassociate, but if we don't have people like that, who are the tax collectors and the sinners in our world? And if we don't have a list, then maybe we're more isolated than we think we are. Paul says, don't disassociate. Then the second thing he says is don't judge. Uh, Look real quick at verse 11. I'm sorry, verse 12 uh, at the bottom here. He goes on to say, what business is it of mine to judge those outside the church? Are you not to judge those inside? God will judge those outside. Now the word here for judge is the Greek word krino. And it's, it's kind of a chameleon word. A chameleon takes on the color of whatever it's next to. This word takes its meaning from the context in which it's used. It, it's simply a word that means to evaluate or judge or criticize or condemn. It has a host, a range of meanings. F.F. Bruce gives us some help here. He says this, 
He explains it this way. Judgment is an ambiguous word in Greek as in English. It may mean exercising a proper discernment, or it may mean sitting in judgment on people or even condemning them. In other words, judgment has two meanings. It can mean to discernment between good and evil and right and wrong, or it can mean to condemn. In this context, Paul is using it in the sense of condemning. He's not saying don't be discerning when it comes to the world. I mean, we have to be able to discern between good and evil, what's right and what's wrong. We need to think critically about our culture and our world and deeply about those kind of things. So we have to be evaluative about what's going on in our world. But don't, don't condemn. And the problem is, is we're pretty good at condemning. At least the world perceives us this way. There was a survey out that's talked about in a book called Unchristian that was uh, written by Gabe Lyons and David Kinneman. This is 2008. And they found this, and they're talking to millennials. They're, they're talking to the new, what's the new generation really think about Christianity. This is disheartening. Nearly 9 out of 10 young outsiders, 87%, said that the term judgmental accurately describes present-day Christianity. Just to put this in practical terms, when you introduce yourself to a 20-something neighbor and you mention your faith, chances are he or she will think of you as judgmental. Whether or not Christians really are judgmental, that is the perception people have of us. And I want to suggest the reason they have that perception is that's how we've responded to our culture. We have been judgmental. We have been condemning. In fact, we're really good at being judgmental. It, <laughs> it comes very easily to us. You know, most of us would say, well, I'm not really very judgmental. But we say that, but then if you tracked your behavior and attitudes as you go throughout a normal day, you'd be surprised. I've been starting to pay attention to my own judgmental attitude. And it's It's rampant. I mean, I evaluate everybody and everything. You know, I do, I do. You know, my wife doesn't clean the kitchen the way I like. I think, well, what's wrong with her? She didn't clean the kitchen the way I would. That's judgment, you know. Um, but I do that. And you do that. We, do, we get really good at being judgmental. I was thinking about why we do that. I think one of the reasons is it makes us feel superior. And it gives us a sense of power right? Because when we judge somebody else, we're in a sense comparing. And we can take the upper hand if we can, can judge them. Now, now what's interesting is we, when we participate in judgment, we, we usually take sin and categorize it. And we have categories of sin, things we think are really bad and things we don't think are so bad. And when we are judging somebody else, we're usually thinking that the category their sin is involved in is far worse than the category of my own sin. So I feel, I, 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 I feel superior. I do. It makes me, I mean, being judgmental is fun. <laughs> it makes me feel good about myself. It makes you feel good about yourself. That's why we do it. And the other reason we do it, not only does it make us feel superior, but it, it, it happens when we forget our theology, right? Because what does our theology tell us? Our, our, our theology says that we're all sinners, that we're all broken, that we, we're all a mixture of good and bad. And if that's true, then we shouldn't be judging anybody else because they're no worse than we are. But we forget our theology. And even when we don't, we say to ourselves, well, yeah, 
I know I'm broken, I know I'm a sinner, but at least I'm not guilty of that sin. At least I, I'm wise enough to have chosen Jesus and believed in Him. Let me tell you something, folks. You should never look down at somebody who doesn't believe and see yourself as superior because you made the wise choice to believe. Because even your faith is not of yourself. It is the gift. Isn't that what Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 2? For by grace you are saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is a gift of God. Even your faith, even my faith, is God's gift to me. So I have no right to look down on somebody who's an unbeliever and say, well, if you'd only believe. It doesn't work that way. Well, in this passage, Paul tells us three reasons why we shouldn't judge, okay? Three reasons why we shouldn't judge. The, the first reason is because we don't have the authority to judge. Why do we think we have the right to approve or disapprove of somebody else's lifestyle or choices or behavior? Paul says, uh, uh, what business is that of yours? <laughs> Who gave you that authority? You see, in the church, people have bought into the community and said, yeah, we're gonna, we want you to hold us accountable. So there, we, we have that prerogative because we're on this journey together as part of a community and we're helping each other. But outside, the, the world hasn't brought into our standards. There's no reason they should live up to them, right? We, we don't have that authority to judge them. Nobody made us judges of the world, at least not yet, okay? But that's our natural tendency, you know, one of the places I see this or saw this most in my own life was with my kids. You know, I tried to be a strict disciplinarian and hold my kids to pretty high standards. And, and um, sometimes they liked it, sometimes they hated it. But I got into this mode of, of, you know, expectations for my kids. And then I'd go, you know, other places, I'd go to the park, or I'd go to the grocery store, and I'd get exposed to somebody else's kids who weren't living up to my standard. Oh, man, I would get so frustrated. You know, what's wrong with them? And, and I wouldn't just think what's wrong with them. I'd want to discipline them, you know, as if I'm the parent of the world. <laughs> Have you ever done that? You know, you, you see people's kids. And if you want to know how inappropriate that is, just try disciplining somebody else's kids. <laughs> They'll let you know. Who do you think you are? What, what business is it of yours? Paul says you don't have the right to render approval or disapproval on people's lifestyle and choices in the world. The second thing he then says is, don't you know that God will judge them? In other words, it's God's prerogative and responsibility to judge, and he will. Now, this is really interesting because by implication, one of the things that is happening here is Paul is telling us, look, as believers, we don't need to defend God's honor. We don't need to hold other people outside the church to his standards. God is very capable of defending his own honor. Very capable of holding people to his own standards. And someday he will. But, but right now, he just respects his image in them and gives them freedom of conscience and respects their dignity to choose or not choose. This is one of the fundamental differences about Christianity and, and say, Islam. 
In Islam, you have to defend the honor of God. You have to defend His standard. If somebody's not living up to those, you're required to make them live up to them. In Christianity, we say, no, we believe in what's called the autonomy of the soul or the freedom of conscience. And by the way, that has worked its way into our religious and uh, systems and our political systems. It's why we hold to, to freedom of religion, because we see people created in God's image, and because they're created in God's image, they have the right to choose, so we respect that dignity, and we, therefore, don't coerce them to believe, and we don't defend God's honor by punishing them for violating His standards that aren't community standards. God will take care of Himself. That's one of those roots that comes out of a Christian worldview that plays out in terms of religious freedom. It's rooted in a Christian understanding and Christian worldview. The third reason we shouldn't judge is kind of implied when he says what business of yours. The implication is, you know what, judging other people isn't a very good way to get them to change their behavior anyway. Then across a little excerpt, um, from a book called The Year of Living Biblically, One Man's Humble Quest to Follow the Bible as Literally as Possible. A guy named J.J. Jacobs um, was nominally Jewish and decided that for one year he was going to try and follow all the commands written in the Old Testament. For example, on day 62 of his experiment, he tried to put into the practice the command to stone an adulterer. So he records wandering into Central Park and meeting a, a mid-70-ish man sitting on a park bench. And Jacob told the man, I'm trying to live by the rules of the Bible, the Ten Commandments, and today I'm stoning adulterers. <laughs> Jacob records the rest of the conversation. The man says, you're stoning adulterers? Yeah, I- I'm stoning adulterers. Well, I'm an adulterer, the man <laughs> replies. You're currently an adulterer? Yeah, tonight, tomorrow, yesterday, two weeks from now, you going to stone me? Well, if I could, yes, that would be great. <laughs> man says, I'll punch you in the face. I'll send you to the cemetery. I mean, he is serious. This isn't a cutesy, grumpy old man. This is an angry old man. This is a man with seven decades of hostility behind him. I fish my pebbles from my back pocket. Well, I wouldn't, st- I wouldn't stone you with big stones, I say. Just these little guys. <laughs> I open my palm to show him the pebbles. He lunges at me, grabbing one out of my hand, then flinging it at my face. It whizzes by my cheek. I'm stunned for a second. I hadn't expected this grizzled old man to make the first move. But now there's nothing stopping me from retaliating. An eye for an eye. I take one of the remaining pebbles and whip it at his chest. It bounces off. I'll punch you right in the kisser, he says. (laughs) Well, you really shouldn't commit adultery. (laughs) (laughs) Not particularly helpful. Now, there's some, 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 as I've been thinking about this whole issue of judgment, there's some attitudes and realizations that, that are helping me think through this issue in my life. One of them is the understanding that people in the world who are behaving in ways that I think are inappropriately, typically are just following out the implications of their worldview. 
they're living consistently with what they believe. And what I have to remember, what we have to remember is, look, you know, those people that we want to wag our finger at and judge really are just after the same things we're after. They, they want to be loved. They're lonely, so they want to be in relationship. They, they, they want to be happy. And they think certain things, they may be confused on what makes them happy, but that's the same thing we want. They're, they're just like us. They're just living out different implications, implications of their world worldview. The second thing that has helped me is to realize in reality I'm no better than them. And we categorize sins and say this is less and that's more and, but that's all a facade. In God's economy all sin is sin. And he doesn't rank them like we do. I mean, you see this in the the chapter's coming. He, he ranks gossip and greed right up there with sexual immorality and homosexuality. He doesn't make the distinctions we do. We forget that. There's a great quote from Renee Brown. Uh, she's a sociologist, and she did this TED Talk called The Power of Vulnerability, and it's just gone viral, 10 million hits plus. But in that talk, she says this, and I think she captures this really well. She says, we are those people. The truth is we are the others. Most of us are one paycheck, one divorce, one drug-addicted kid, one mental health diagnosis, one serious illness, one sexual assault, one drinking binge, one night of unprotected sex, or one affair away from being those people, the ones we don't trust, the ones we pity, the ones we don't let our children play with, the ones bad things happen to, the ones we don't want living next door. It's true. The third realization that has helped me, not only are they living out the implications of their worldview, not only am I as broken as they are, but third, coming to the realization that, that, that the real problem isn't the lifestyle choice or the sin or the behavior that I'm reacting to. The real problem is Jesus. That's the real issue. The addiction, the immorality, the, the lifestyle, those are just symptoms. And even if you go after the symptoms, that doesn't get to the heart of the issue. The heart of the issue is what are they doing with Jesus? That's, that's the issue. And we forget that. And, and we, <laughs> I was thinking about it, we do just the opposite of what Paul tells us here. We disassociate and judge. And when we disassociate and judge, we lose every opportunity we have to go after what the real issue is. Because when we're disassociating and judging, we don't have a relationship. And when we don't have a relationship, it's really hard to tell people about this Jesus who loves them. They, they can't even hear that because all they feel is their judgment. So how's it going in your world? So you go to Starbucks, and you go to Starbucks the same time every morning. And you've begun to notice that at the same time you show up, a girl shows up. Only she's a goth. She dresses all in black. You know, she has big boots, and her hair's real funky and spiked and 
strange colors and her fingernails are painted black and she wears black lipstick and she has piercing and she has tattoos and she carries a little backpack. And you've noticed that she orders the same drink you do, a double espresso skinny latte. And you're you're there standing behind her and you watch her and every time, you know, she, she struggles to hold on to her backpack and struggling to get the money to pay for her drink. And you're thinking to yourself, well, do I offer to hold her backpack? Do I say hi? Do I point out the fact that we always get the same drink? Do we say hi to each other as if we know, as if we, we recognize because we're here every day? Do, do I recognize when she misses a day and do I ask her if she's okay the next time she shows up? Do I begin to engage her in relationships so I begin to understand what is all this blackness about and hear her story and maybe even invite her over or at least buy her her cup of coffee or sit down at the table and talk with her or do I just keep my mouth shut and judge or there's a guy at work (laughs) been divorced twice was living with his girlfriend and her child but that's not happening anymore. Evidently, he, he got pretty inebriated and slapped her about, and she called the police, and he ended up in jail for a few days and now has a restraining order, and he's at work. And, you know, he's one of those guys in your office that you don't like to hang out with. Nobody does, in fact, because he's kind of gruff and belligerent, and he's hard to get along with and always wants his way. But you noticed about him that at lunchtime, he always goes and he gets a hamburger or a burrito. And you realize that lunchtime you do the same thing. You have a decision to make. Do you, do, do, do you invite him out to lunch? Do you take him out to lunch and buy his burrito and talk to him about how the Rockies stink this year or who he thinks is going to win the, the, the playoffs between Cleveland and whoever they're playing? And um, Do you ask him about, about, about how he thinks the Broncos are doing it? And do you start listening to his story? And do you begin to understand the brokenness in his life and how scared he is and how lonely he is and how frustrated he is at himself that he can't control his own behavior and that he doesn't know what to do? Or you just keep your mouth shut and judge. Or the house next to you sells and a couple moves in, but it's not your typical couple. It's two guys. And uh, you realize they're gay. And you have a decision to make. Well, how are you going to respond to having gay neighbors? And uh, are you going to take them a plate of cookies and welcome them to the, to the neighborhood? Are you going to invite them to the neighborhood barbecue? I mean, you notice a lot of differences between you and them. I mean, they dress different. Their circle of friends way different than your circle of friends. And you notice that all those political signs they put in their front yard, they're not for the candidates you're voting for. In fact, half of them are for issues you're voting against. But you decide that you're going to reach out and you invite them over. They come over for the barbecue. You have them over for for coffee when it snows, you shovel their walk. When they're gone for a couple of weeks, you mow their lawn. And now you, you have a relationship. And as you get to know them, you realize that they really want to adopt a kid and have a family and children, and they really want to get married. And then it happens. An invitation shows up at your door to their wedding. And what are you going to do? I was sitting around with a a group of pastors 
talking about this whole issue of gay marriage and whether or not we would go to a gay wedding. And there's lots of opinion. This is a difficult issue. Mike Turner, who is uh, the head of HIV CareLink, was there that day in the building. And so we asked him to come in. And he deals with this issue all the time. And uh, um, asked, Mike, would you, you go to the wedding of a gay, gay friend? And he looked at us and he says, well, of course. Why, why wouldn't I go to their wedding? I mean, I, I'm not there to approve or disapprove of their lifestyle choices. They're my friends. My obligation to them is to love them and, and to share Jesus with them. If I don't go to their wedding, I won't have a word to say. Well, do you approve of gay marriage? She said, that, that's not the issue. I'm not here to re- render judgment. I began thinking about myself, and I realized that if I had to approve or disapprove of all the weddings I went to, I wouldn't go to that many weddings. (laughs) You see, sharing Jesus is far more important than rendering judgment. Well, then, would we just let the world go to hell and not say anything about what's going on in our culture? No, not at all. Let me give you three more principles, okay? So we're not to disassociate and we're not to judge. Here's some things we are to do. We're to, to love and serve. Uh, Matthew chapter 5 uh, says this, Well, you are the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. You are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp, put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. Jesus is saying, look, you're called to be holy. You're called to be salty. You're called to be different. That's why we hold the body accountable. So, so they are different. But not only are you called to be different, you're called to be engaged. You're called to be light in the darkness holy and engaged. And when you're holy and engaged, you do good things. You love those around you. And guess what? The world takes note. They see your good works and they give glory to God. Love and serve. And the reality is when we begin to be holy and engage and love and serve and they see our good works, we change the world. Not by our political might or our coercive power but by our love and service. I was talking to Mike about HIV care link. They have this great ministry to people who are HIV positive. They move them. When they need to change apartments or move out of a house, uh, HIV care link shows up with a truck and people to carry boxes and furniture. And they don't lecture and they don't sermonize and they don't try to render judgment. They just serve them and love them, and move them. And it's interesting, if you look at the history of Christianity, the impact that the church has had by loving and serving is amazing. John Stott, uh, in his book, uh, um, Involvement, gives a summary. This is great. He says, motivated by love for human beings in need, 
the early Christians went everywhere preaching the word of God because nothing has such a humanizing influence as the gospel. And later they founded schools and hospitals and refuges for the outcasts. Later still they abolished the slave trade and freed the slaves and they improved the conditions of the workers in the mills and the mines and the prisoners in jail. They protected children from commercial exploitation in the factories of the West and from ritual prostitution in the temples of the East. Today, they bring leprosy sufferers, both the compassion of Jesus and modern methods of reconstructive surgery and rehabilitation. They care for the blind and the deaf and the orphaned and the widowed, the sick and the dying. They get alongside junkies and stay alongside with them during the traumatic period of withdrawal. They set themselves up against racism and political oppression. They get involved in the urban scene, the inner city, the slums and the ghettos and raise their protests against the inhuman conditions in which so many are doomed to live. They seek in whatever way they can to express their solidarity with the poor and the hungry, the deprived and the disadvantaged. I'm not claiming that all Christians at all times have given their lives in such service, but a sufficiently large number have done so to make the record noteworthy. Engage in love and you change the world. Uh, Fourth principle is we need to develop a prophetic voice. You know, if we love and serve well, what happens is we develop this foundation where we, we earn the right to speak to our culture, not, not about individuals' behavior, but to our culture and the issues at large. A little continuum I think is helpful when we, we think about this. On one side, you have imposition. This is when the church thinks its right is to impose its morality on the culture. And you you, you see this in, in history, a number of places. Inquisition, they tried to impose their beliefs. In prohibition, they tried to impose their behavior. With the moral majority, we tried to impose a, a political ph- philosophy. And guess what? None of it worked. If you don't win the culture and the mind and the heart, you can't expect their belief or behavior or their politics to come alongside. The other end of the spectrum is what I call laissez-faire. This is where you say nothing and do nothing. The best example of this, or the worst example of this, is how the, the, the church responded to the Nazis' treatment of the Jews in Germany. It said nothing. It went along with the pogams to, to, to kill Jews, to the final solution. They, they said nothing. They opted out. There was a small confessing church that said something, but the whole of the German population, the German church, abdicated their responsibility to speak into their culture. In between those two is what I call persuasion. And persuasion is how we change the slave traffic, how we change the laws about child labor. It is where we begin to articulate in a rational way reasons why we should follow God's design because it fits with the nature of reality. We don't make a religious argument. We, we make an argument that the world can understand because the natural world around us follows God's design. And we become persuasive. And you know, if we're loving and serving, they begin to listen and we impact our culture. Stott summarizes it well. He says, we should seek to educate the public conscious to know and desire the will of God. The church should seek to be the conscious of the nation. We cannot impose God's will by legislation, nor can we convince people of it merely by biblical quotation. For these are examples of authority from above, which people resent and resist. More effective is authority from below. The intrinsic truth and value of thing which is self-evident and therefore self-authenticating. You see, if we can win the hearts and the minds of the culture, then the politics and the legislators and the courts will follow. 
So how persuasive are we? The last principle is simply this. Sometimes we just have to act for justice. We have to help people get out of the slave trafficking. We have to help the immigrant. We have to help the oppressed. We have to provide. We we just have to act sometimes for justice because it's the right thing to do. When I think of the role of the church in the world, the image that always comes to my mind is the cellist de Sarajevo. Uh, on, um, Verdan Smolovich was born in 1956, November 11th. Come from a family that was very musical, five kids, and he took up the cello and became very, very good. When he was in his 30s, he was the principal cellist for the Sarajevo Opera Theater. And then war broke out in Sarajevo. And uh, Smolovich says that during those years, living in Sarajevo was like living in the capital of hell. On May 27th, 1992, there was a line of people standing to get bread in front of the only bakery in Sarajevo that still had flour and so could make bread. At four o'clock on that day, shells came, mortars, and killed 22 of the people in line. Verdun was watching this from about 100 yards away from his apartment window. The next day, another line formed because the only option was to uh, go to the place where you could get bread or starve to death. So people showed up even realizing they were taking the chance of being shelled again. As that line formed out of the building came Verdun, dressed in his black tuxedo and his black tie, carrying his cello and a chair. And in the midst of the rubble, he set his chair down and he began to play his cello, Abiani's Adagio, a very sad, haunting tune. And the music began to rumble through the rubble. Just some beauty in the midst of the death and the despair and the war. For the next 21 days, Verdun showed up with his chair and his cello and played the adagio. Beauty in the midst of devastation. That is what we are to be. The church in the midst of the world. In this dark and broken place, we are to be light and give forth the love of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, help us. So easy for us to isolate ourselves and to judge the world around us. Help us not do that. Help us, Waterstone, be be a place that engages with its world, engages with people around us, shows forth the love of Jesus Christ and the kingdom of God. Help us do it wisely. Help us do it with integrity. Help us to be holy people, but help us engage with our world. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ and all God's people said.